All right, folks, I think we will, I think we will begin. Um, this is like my first time moderating one of these, so I really want to go down in history as having kept us to time. Um, thank you all for coming uh, to the panel on teaching global book history. Um, my name is Joseph Howley. I'm an associate professor of classics at Columbia University. Um, I'm very uh, flattered to have been asked to moderate this panel. Um, when I uh, first started basically trying to come up with course offerings at Columbia that were anything outside of my department's major track, um, global book history was where I landed because due to the idiosyncrasies of Columbia's rigorous core curriculum, there are basically no um, humanities elective categories that Columbia undergraduates are ever trying to fulfill except global core, what we call global cores, courses that deal substantially with non-Western cultures. Um, this is a program that was actually added um, in recent relatively sort of living memory uh, to compensate for the fact that every single Columbia student is required to read basically the works of dead white men for two straight years. They all re take Lit Hum, our great books course, they all take our contemporary civilizations political thought course. Um, and then this elective was added, Global Core, and, and faculty can develop courses and sort of petition to have them win that Global Core seal of approval, and once they do, your course fills up overnight, because um, everyone's trying to take their Global Core courses before they graduate. Um, so this is something I've thought a lot, a lot about, because uh, in part because of the sort of creativity that the constraints of that program bred for me. Um, I taught global book history, and then the following year I adapted it back to my major track for classics and book history, and I really missed the global framing, actually. I really missed a lot of the richness and found myself talking about a lot of non-Western book history um, in the book history and classics course, because I found it was actually essential to the conversation I wanted to have as a classicist and someone interested in the ancient book, as opposed to, you know, like printed books in the Netherlands in the 17th century or whatever, no offense if that's your thing, um, I, found, I, I have found a lot that, that um, there's a lot of alienating that needs to be done from the modern book to have a good informed conversation about the ancient book or indeed about kind of anything other than, let's say, modern printed, um, sort of pre-factory level printing printed books. And um, I often find it's just more productive and you have a better conversation about the book qua book, the book as, as technology. Um, when you are thinking in this this sort of way, that said, you know, global is a contested and a sometimes fraught term. I think that's something that we will we will get into today. Um, at Columbia, as I've said, it means three things. It means what they call faculty reach, which means I have to learn about things I don't know about. That's openly stated as part of the goal. Um, as I've said, global stands at Columbia in opposition to the kind of dead white men focus of the core curriculum and of the traditional, let's say. American liberal arts great books canon. Um, and, you know, as a classicist, our, our subjects are sort of the deadest and whitest and manliest of them all. This is a particular challenge, I think a productive one to us. And also, um, global for us anyway, basically refers to the kind of modern neoliberal corporate university's projection of its brand through local branded teaching centers or... Um, facilities built with slave labor in uh, Abu Dhabi, that sort of thing. Um, we, global is a word that came into the teaching curriculum at my university from the idea that there should be Columbia-branded classrooms all over the world that we charge local populations exorbitant fees to enter. Um, so, so from my perspective, global has a lot of baggage, even as it also has a lot of kind of intellectual potential. Um, 
Uh, we're going to hear five presentations today that raise a lot of um, uh, interesting questions about, about global history and teaching global history. Um, we'll think about, for example, the backgrounds that our students bring or the extra contexts or histories that they might need, um, depending on what sort of majors or tracks they're coming from. I think we'll think about um, how teaching global book history serves both existing and hoped for curricular goals, right? How does it fit into your, for example, your current major track or something you think your program should be doing? Um, and I also want to think about perhaps how we teach global book history, practically speaking, in the absence of a richly global special collections library, right? We're not all lucky enough to have a rich East Asian library on campus, for example. And when I taught global book history, I thought we would make a lot of use of that library, but then the special collections cage flooded the summer before I taught the course, so um, I, I had to think on my feet. Um, so we're going to have five short presentations that uh, explore different specific materials, methods, and pedagogies that help us, I think, triangulate this project of global book history. Uh, and I know that Devin and Ben also hope that this will be a chance to share resources and to make connections for future sharing and collaboration. So presenters are going to speak for 10 minutes. Uh, and I do have cards, because um, what more classic symbol is there of the modern um, university environment than a white man telling you to stop talking? Uh, and I, so I will be waving these cards. Um, and uh, so everyone will speak for 10 minutes. And then I'll ask all the speakers to come sit up front. And uh, we'll use the remainder of our time for what I'm sure will be a very rich and fruitful conversation. So uh, first up is one of our organizers, Devin Fitzgerald, is a PhD candidate in history and East Asian languages. And he's forgotten to tell me where, but I think it's Harvard. Yeah. Harvard. OK. <laughs> all right. Devin, it's all yours. I like that uh, Joe has already got my blood fired up with that highly polemical introduction right. to what we're doing, because this is polemical, uh, and I, I don't want there to be any doubt about that. Um, and one of the problems I find in teaching global history is that what many people try to do is they take their area of specialties, specialization, and then they attach other places somewhere in this, the flow of the syllabus. And so essentially, what they're doing is providing a function as a human, human being that someone can go to Wikipedia to fulfill. Uh, and this is, I think, one of the, the dark sides of global history, is that it's a, a factology. And it's often acute factology of people finding delightful anecdotes of cosmopolitans doing exciting things in the early modern period while ignoring the structural aspects of uh, global orders that are inherently violent. And so as I was thinking about that, I was thinking, how would one sort of bring that appreciation for structural history to teaching a book history? And uh, my answer to that is one way to disrupt teleologies is to look at uh, shared moments of sort of global attempts to reproduce texts uh, that both challenge our understanding of European modes of textual reproduction and also highlight some of the uh, interesting features and perhaps uh, technological advantages of other modes of textual reproduction that have been left out of a story that leads to the triumphant march and rise of movable type technology, which uh, I think I'll just start by reminding everyone, it really only dominated in China for 80 years, mm -hmm. you know, from it really 1910 up until the 1980s. And, and we're in a digital age now that will last much longer. And the xylographic age was over a 1,000 years. 
Um, and so that brought me to the text that I'll be discussing very, very briefly since we only have 10 minutes, which is uh, this giant stone inscription, the Nestorian Steli of Xi'an. And this text was ex uh, excavated in central China in 1625 when there happened to be a lot of Jesuits around. And this was a very exciting moment, and now I'm going to uh, redirect your attention to the side of the room. Uh, because when this steli was excavated, it had a large cross on the top. And this, what this steli does is it describes the progress and the victories of Nestorian Christianity in, uh, from the 7th to the 8th century in China. And it's dated to uh, 795. And uh, for the Jesuits, this was a boon. And for Chinese antiquarians, this was also a boon. And that gets me to this first point, which is most of you have never seen something quite like what I'm holding up, uh, which is uh, this is something that's a particular Chinese innovation that's been around uh, since really the ninth century called an ink squeeze. Some people call it an ink rubbing. And you can cast this top part around. And how this is produced is by pasting a thin sheet of paper. Here's the whole steli, so you see the Syriac on the side. Uh, thanks, Ben. Uh, so you see the Syriac on the side. And you paste this paper on top of the stone and loosely uh, go over it with ink balls to get this very high quality textual reproduction. And this stone, which was carved in 792, you can go to Xi'an, where it's held today, and buy one of these for $10. Uh, and so we're talking about a mode of textual reproduction that I think Western antiquarians uh, would have envied in the early modern period, and in fact is allowing this, this steli to continue to circulate in, as a facsimile original today. So that's the first point uh, I'd like to make, is that for the Chinese encounter with this object, there was a high quality mode of textual reproduction that is still in practice and valued by uh, book collectors today. So after the steli was excavated, a squeeze like this was sent to the Chinese coast, where a series of woodblock wood uh, publications containing the text of the inscription uh, were then circulated. And the second point I'd like to point out is that for in the history of printing, often the xylographic publication is assumed to be uh, a less efficient mode of textual reproduction. And what I would like to say that as a comparative bibliographer, I've come to actually appreciate that the place I go to to think about how these texts reproduce themselves is the study of 19th century stereotype. Uh, because when you're looking for variation in these texts, you have essentially 100 or two plates that you need to analyze. And so there's this thing Western book historians do, and they often say, well, in China there were 13,000 titles printed in the 17th century and 90,000 titles in early modern England. And I think that's probably because the English were horribly inefficient and irrational, because they were print, reprinting editions of the same text with new title pages. Uh, so if you think of, for example, how many copies of uh, some sort of popular primer that had different paratextual materials, but the content was the same, each unit of production was a separate uh, set of activities in, in a press, whereas this, uh, these uh, blocks were used for 200 years and printed who knows how many editions. Uh, in fact, the Chinese uh, publication was probably organized by print-on-demand. So that should further destabilize uh, where what we think printing technology and xylographic printing technology does. Uh, great. 
Uh, and you can obviously also use this to reproduce images. And you'll see they did a pretty good job uh, with the cross at the top, which is coming around. Uh, unlike uh, ham-fisted Europeans, uh, who, in their attempt to reproduce this, and this is from Athanasius uh, Kieser's uh, China Illustrata, uh, it has a much longer name that talks about Egypt and all of these other weird things in it. But when you open this book, uh, what you get is this nice, fold-out, uh, engraved reproduction of the stele. Uh, and so that brings me to this next point that while woodblock was an incredible, f incredibly flexible medium, the medium we tend to talk about in teaching book history, actual letterpress printing, was n not, in, not all that flexible. That when this uh, stele arrived in Europe uh, in this form with uh, Latin glosses and letters, you can go to the Vatican Library and see all of the original packet uh, that was received. Uh, this presented a fundamental challenge for Europeans trying to think about how to integrate a facsimile of the original uh, into text. And actually, uh, this large fold-out copper plate engraving uh, doesn't actually get reproduced that much. Uh, it's not a great reproduction and leads to a number of sort of errors late, later on, but I'm not interested in those. I'm just trying to raise the point that, uh, on one hand, the predominant mode of printing in East Asia is incredibly flexible, Europeans had to have whole separate sets of technology. And so as an East Asianist, I just think that's awfully irrational. I mean, if we're talking about modernization, why not have one set of tools that allows you to do all sorts of things instead of needing all of these shops um, and different printing projects? Uh, and that finally gets me to its, its final life, which was in letterpress. And letterpress uh, was obviously the predominant mode of reproducing these materials. But there was still this problem, which is that for Europeans, they were interested in reproducing something of the Chinese text. Uh, text. And this figure, Andreas Mueller, uh, decided to do this in this very strange way, which is by transcribing, according, according to the predominant mode of transcribing Chinese, the text of it, and then setting it to music, uh, because East Asians uh, had it sort of a singing language rather than a normal language. Uh, and this tied into uh, Mueller's sense of biblical time and the idea that Chinese represented one of the earliest surviving uh, human languages, perhaps a uh, pre-Babel language, if you will. John Webb in England is making a similar argument. Um, so if, now to bring this back around to teaching book history, I think that it's really good that people uh, do a sort of chronological ordered approach to various modes of printing. However, that chronological approach often ends with 19th century technologies that predominated in the industrial West. Uh, and that chronological approach often puts the xylograph uh, in a week where movable type often dominates, or a lo there's long periods discussing uh, vellum or medieval manuscripts. Uh, textual technologies that actually, uh, compared to, for example, xylographic printing, uh, weren't around for all, of, all that long, and in fact weren't particularly good if you judge a technology by its uh, range of capabilities. One of the wonderful things about computers is that they can do all sorts of things, and in fact, uh, as we move into this digital age, uh, things like Western copyright law are becoming less and less relevant 
particularly when you go to non-Western regions where books are pirated. And in fact, there is a sort of Wild West media information culture. Uh, and when I do my work in China, I very much feel that I'm on the edge of something next. And when you look from the perspective of these different types of technologies, you get a deeper appreciation of uh, the importance of teaching book history, not as uh, a teleology, but as the range of possibilities that different modes of textual reproduction enable. Um, so I think that is the end of my polemic. Uh, So next up uh, are Florence Xia and Robin Ryder from Wisconsin Madison, University of Wisconsin Madison. Florence is professor of history. Do I have that right? History science. History science. Excuse me. And Robin is curator of special collections, both from the University of Wisconsin Madison. And Ben is kindly helping me find their presentation. Thank you very much for uh, inviting us to participate here. Um, Galileo Sidereus Nuncius, The Starry Messenger, is a great book to teach about, uh, flush as it is with the excitement of discovery and challenge. It was published in Venice in 1610, the book in which Galileo first presented to a reading public his images of the moon, well, moons, planets, and stars as seen through a telescope. But which book or books? And in which in what format. The appeal of the first edition, would that we had one, um, has animated collectors for centuries and the book has enjoyed legion editions, translations, and facsimiles in print and otherwise. Uh, in June 2008, the Library of Congress had finally acquired a copy of the first edition of The Starry Messenger and an especially fine one. Okay. The LC copy represents an early state of the production process, also one of four known copies never trimmed for printing, or for binding, uh, so that all the stars in Orion that Galileo intended to show in print are present, uh, not left on the bindery floor. LC digitized its version for delivery online, and there was also a print facsimile edition um, uh, at the same time, another, uh, dare we say, extraordinary copy of the Starry Messenger of 1610 had become the subject of much scholarship and detailed authentication. At the California Antiquarian Book Fair in early 2013, Nick Wilding, known well here, um, gave a presentation entitled Forging Galileo and you could have heard a pin drop as Nick was speaking. And a New Yorker piece brought the matter to broader public attention. The Starry Messenger thus has an obvious hook, well, hooks, actually, and we have exploited its appeal thoroughly in our joint teaching on the scientific revolution at Madison. Uh, it's in fact tailor-made for investigations of impact, editions, facsimiles, and a broader concept of translation. 
So this copy of um, Galileo's Starry Messenger from 1610 came on the market in 2005 through the offices of a New York book dealer, Martian Lan. This is a very rare enough event in the world of rare book collecting. There are only about 90 examples of the book that are still extant, um, maybe a print run of 550 or so. And of those surviving copies, there are maybe about a dozen, that, uh, including the copy purchased by Martian Lan, um, that are missing the five etched copies of uh, five etched images of the man that made the book so sensational. And this probably represents um, an intermediate stage in the printing process where they had printed the letterpress type but not yet the copper plate engravings. But there's only one copy of the uh, Starry Messenger that includes watercolor drawings of the moon. And this was the copy that Richard Lan of Martin Lan acquired from an Italian book dealer, uh, Marino Massimo Di Caro, in 2005 for half a million dollars. Academic studies of this unique copy quickly followed. The German art historian Horst Bredekamp declared in 2007 that these drawings were from the hand of Galileo himself. And he also claimed that the watercolors were then the originals on which the engravings that were later printed in the books uh, were based. So therefore, this um, uh, SNML copy was, the, was a proof copy of the book. Bradkamp's initial analysis of this unique copy laid the foundations for an interdisciplinary collaboration of experts. Ownership marks, uh, oops, ownership marks, inks, paper, techniques of mechanics and drawing, etching and printing all received due uh, attention. In particular, uh, Paul Nadem's rigorous assessment of paper stocks, watermarks, typographic settings, and printing errors across more than 80 surviving copies of the Starry Messenger made it possible to establish the book's production uh, process stage by stage, and in some cases, even day by day. Bredekamp suggested in his introduction that perhaps only the Gutenberg Bible has sim received a similar amount of bibliographical uh, attention analysis. So we have this um, SNML copy then authenticated as the proof copy. But um, what Robin and I found very interesting is that um, this authentication process that Bredekamp and his team pursued, and then also I think that we ourselves use very often, involves two interlocking but also potentially con contradictory assumptions. The first is, and this is a quote um, from Paul Needham, early printed books always contain physical traces of the processes by which they were made and used. So you've already seen how Orion lost some of its stars in the process of binding, for instance. And there are also um, examples of printing errors that are caught and sometimes corrected. So um, you can see that paste down right in the middle. It used to say cosmic stars. And then the Medicis suggested to Galileo that maybe a better name would be Medician stars. <laughs> um, then there's also a, uh, an autograph correction by Galileo down on the uh, low right. And then, of course, um, also well-studied are examples of presentation copies, as with the Tico Prophecy that we talked about yesterday. And then here is the copy at Oklahoma, which is a presentation copy with Galileo's um, uh, writing on the front. But for our purposes, the most striking feature of, um, whoops. Uh, oh, so I'm going to turn my pages today. So that's one assumption, right, that uh, the printing process um, leaves its marks on the physical artifacts. But the second unspoken assumption that we wanted to bring to the fore is, that, is the idea that a facsimile, whether lithographic, photomechanical, or digital, is the most faithful of all translations, right? That um, it reproduces all of the features that are particular to a unique physical copy. So for instance, this physical reproduction of the Starry Messenger has blank spaces where the lunar uh, images should be because it's based on a copy in the edge that's missing those etchings. 
And obviously, we've been relying on those two assumptions uh, in showing you these digital images, which claim to reproduce unique copies that are held in Oklahoma or at LC and so on. Um, and the Library of Congress did likewise when it began its work of authenticating the copy that it eventually ended up purchasing. So the first thing apparently that they did is they looked at a copy um, that was owned by John Warnock, who's founder of Adobe. Um, and this is an, uh, Adobe, he found, co-founded a company to produce um, digital, high quality digital reproductions um, of um, rare books. Still readable 20 years later because Adobe Reader is back <laughs> and forward compatible. Okay. So when Nick Walding began preparing a review of Galileo's O, that two-volume um, um, study of that unique marking down copy, he also started with digital images, with photos, with published reproductions, these physical facsimiles of um, early modern books, comparing specific physical copies with each other and then also with the SNML copy. And his conclusion, as is well known now, is that the SNML copy is in fact a forgery, it's a fake. And since that, uh, his revelation, um, a third volume of Galileo's O has since appeared, where that same team of experts led by Bredekamp um, tackled the question of how, as uh, Tony Grafton put it yesterday, their eyes have been ravished by the SNML copy. But for our purposes, our teaching purposes, the most striking feature about the case that Wadding had made about the forgery of the SNML proof copy was that he never examined it in person, at least not while he was writing this review. He only looked at reproductions. He looked at facsimiles of one sort or another. Um, so he looked at digital images of the Starry Messenger uh, copies. Um, basically, here's a series of um, uh, facsimiles that uh, he used. Um, and one of the uh, facsimiles that he made use of was one that was made in Pisa in 1964 based on the copy that is now at the Milan Observatory. And this is the fac that 1964 facsimile. In all of these uh, reproductions, his attention was caught by that italic capital P. We can go back for a second. Um, and you can see that P, it looks a little weird, right? It has that sort of um, extended foot uh, going off to the left there. Um, but when Wilding finally obtained a scan of that copy in Milan on which this physical 1964 piece of was made, what he realizes that that P that with the long foot there um, is due to the fact that the Milan copies paper had browned just right at the bottom. And in the photographic reproduction process, that brown had been turned into black because you only have black and white in the reproduction. So, and essentially, the 1964 Pisa facsimile uh, created not a replica of that particular physical copy, but rather a new version of the Starry Messenger, a new edition, you might say, with that telltale P, with some garbled Latin and some other flaws. Um, and even some of the moons of Jupiter uh, had gone missing in the facsimile, thanks to the photo retoucher, who was a little too eager to clean up uh, the text. So you can see that. Um, the moon that's at the top, right next to the big O, right? It's missing in the middle one. And then at the bottom, um, in a very widely used uh, teaching edition that was published at Chicago in 1989, uh, the missing moon has been reinserted by a good critical editor, right, in the brackets. <laughs> so if early printed books always contain uh, physical traces of the processes by which they are made, uh, 
so do later printed, photomechanically reproduced, and digitized books. And such rematerializations make a real difference for readers, whether it's one uh, in Galileo's time or ours, uh, a collector in the market for a unique proof copy at only $10 million, or a college student seeking a reliable scholarly edition. And this gripping tale uh, could not have been woven nor told without critical analysis of translation in terms of language, geography, and physical form. So for our undergraduate course at Madison on the Scientific Revolution, we designed a set of lab sessions in special collections meant to develop student skills, skills in analyzing printed books in various material incarnations as historical artifacts. Uh, students read how the SNML copy of Galileo's book was made, unmade, and remade. Uh, we guide students through a structured exploration of translations of the original publication, whether linguistic, visual, geographic, all of those, through a wide range of material supports. So in conclusion, we just want to um, point out how analysis, guided analysis of these many rematerializations of Starry Messenger and its images gave our students the critical skills and the empirical material with which they could analyze um, these kinds of developments. They questioned ideas about originality, uh, facsimile reproduction, forgery, and also translation, and how to critically evaluate translation through a number of different media as well as languages. Rather than asking what did Galileo see, we call on students to ask what did Galileo's readers see through 400 years since he first turned the telescope in skies. Thank you. Thank you so much, Florence and Robin. Um, our next speaker is Chris Hunter, Assistant Professor of English at California Institute of Technology. I think you have a PowerPoint. I do. All right. Um, I'm going to be talking about uh, an assignment or a set of assignments I put together for a course entitled American Literature and the Technologies of Reading. Um, it's uh, the only book history class, as far as I know, uh, at Caltech, and not an emphatically global one. And so one of the things I would like to think about, I guess, collectively, are ways... Um, to sort of open and expand that. Uh, but we can see over the course of the presentation some of the ways in which uh, this course does reach out, um, certainly beyond the, the confines of the nation um, or of the Atlantic. So in or around 1744, 12-year-old George Washington copied a recipe to keep ink from freezing or molding, a pair of poems, uh, and a series of exercises on gauging, weighing, and measuring into one of his notebooks. The source of this material was a relatively recently published book called The American Instructor or The Young Man's Best Companion. Uh, and you can see a multiply remediated <laughs> image of the title page there. This is a uh, PDF of a uh, scan of a microfilm of the original, <laughs> I think. Um, the American instructor, as at least one of you I know certainly knows, um, 
was kind of on the leading edge of a revolution in American school book publication uh, that would eventually lead to such blockbusters as Lindley Murray's Grammar and uh, Noah Webster's Blueback Speller. But this particular one was an American edition of a British book simply called The Instructor or The Young Man's Best Companion. Uh, it was published, as you can see, uh, in Philadelphia by Benjamin Franklin, um, and essentially sort of pitched itself as a, a catch-all self-education tract for uh, aspiring young men in um, colonial Philadelphia. The instructors proved incredibly useful in the classroom for a range of reasons, but um, I'm going to focus on two of them today. The first has to do with the book's status as a, a pedagogical text itself, um, a text meant to instruct and inculcate. Um, the second has to do with the ways that the text and its lessons open onto the wider world of colonial American print and, I suppose as well, uh, global book culture. So. I teach a range of pedagogical texts, uh, the New England Primer, that kind of stalwart standby uh, of American instruction, uh, and Adam's Fall, We Send All, all of that. Um, the problem with teaching the Primer is that all of my students already know how to read. And so actually engaging on a, a pedagogical level with the instructions in the text is impossible for them. but. What I've found out is that they don't know how to write. And uh, I don't mean that in a snarky writing instructor way, although I do have a lot of essays waiting for me to grade. But um, what they can't do is write like a colonial American. And so one of the first lessons that I give them is the American instructor's instructions on how to make a pen. It should be said, there's a disclaimer at the beginning of this in the book, which says it's sooner gained uh, from observation and experience than verbal direction. And you'll see why this is true. The instructions read as follows. After uh, telling students how to prepare their feathers and select them, cut the quill at the end half through on the back part, and then turning up the belly, cut the other half or part quite through. It is about a quarter, almost half an inch, uh, at the end of the quill, which will then appear forked. Then enter the penknife a little into the back notch and putting the peg of the penknife haft or the end of another quill into the back notch, holding your thumb pretty hard on the back of the quill, as high as you intend the slit to be. Then with a sudden quick twitch or force, uh, open the slit. It must be so sudden and smart that the slit may be the clearer. Then by several cuts of each side, bring the quill into equal shape or form on both sides. And having brought it to a fine point, place the inside of the nib on the nail of your thumb. Enter the knife at the extremity of the nib and cut it through with a little sloping. Uh, it goes on. <laughs> um, I have the incredible privilege of teaching uh, some very technically brilliant students. Uh, these are students who will help to launch rovers onto planets and um, you know, do incredible work with cells, but I've yet to have a single one of them who can decipher <laughs> that paragraph of instruction. Uh, and so eventually what I will do is reproduce for them uh, another image like this one uh, from Godey's Lady's book in the 19th century that actually gives a kind of visual depiction of how to go about making a quill. Um, but then I 
have them make quills. And that process, um, in a way, sort of brings up some of the differences, I guess, between our modern supply chain and the one that uh, Franklin and his uh, contemporaries would have uh, engaged with. Their best quills came from Russia or Scandinavia. Um, mine came from Las Vegas. Uh, the one place that you can get feathers in bulk, it turns out, are showgirl supply stores. Where they, <laughs> they sell them by the pound. Uh, a pound of feathers is actually quite a lot of quills, as it happens. Um, so I have my students then take the pens that they've made and engage with uh, Franklin's instructions on how to write. Um, as he says, thus far for direction, now for application. Um, the book contains a series of plates. There are two plates folded in half to make four uh, pages or images um, of the various hands that the aspiring young man of business might wish to learn. Um, we can see them here, the Italian hand, uh, secretary hand, which was basically useless in colonial America. Um, an easy copy for round hand and the flourishing alphabet. Um, and inevitably, in their attempts to reproduce all of these scripts, we wind up having conversations about what were the circumstances, uh, cultural, historical, that produced the requirement for so many different ways of writing. Um, these are, it's a generation of students who are indifferently educated in cursive writing themselves. Um, not all of them learned it in school. Um, they did learn uh, a print hand, which we can see here, um, Franklin illustrating with his favorite new Haslam type um, in letterpress, uh, I would add. So um, this is, I actually don't have very many copies of student work. Uh, unlike their essays, which generally they're content to <laughs> leave with me at the end of the quarter, everybody wants their writing assignments back. And um, you can see, first, just how difficult it is to master uh, the technology of inscription. Um, this is, I think, a fairly typical to slightly better than average example of what um, my students are able to produce given a week uh, and this assignment. But um, it becomes very obvious to them that the little morals that are attached to these in typical Franklinian fashion, uh, take great care and you'll write fair, art is gained by great labor and industry. Um, these kind of unsubtle efforts to connect the formation of characters to the formation of character, um, which are absolutely a part of colonial education across the board, um, hit home for them. I don't know that any of them would say that, you know, they're writing fair or uh, that they've gained art, but they have at least experienced what it would have been like um, on some level for a colonial subject to attempt to do those things. Um, this is uh, a later edition of the same book, obviously a better image. Uh, Isaiah Thomas's from uh, 1778, maybe. Uh, and he's substituted, as you can see, the German text for the secretary, which 
drops out after Franklin's edition and basically no longer plays a role. Um, so I've got one minute left. Um, one of the things um, that, that this book has uh, opened out on too, I think, in my classroom is uh, a wider interest. Oops, that's my timer. Um, in later editions, in re-editions, in remediations of the same book, um, one of the my students, you know, using Google and Google Books, um, discovered the kind of throwaway line I think in um, Kathy Davidson's writing the Revolution about this book, which said essentially that of all the copies she had ever looked at, um, none of them had women owners or users, implying that the young man's best companion was, in fact, only for men. And um, the same student also found in the library company catalog the fact that I took the picture, but uh, they tracked it down. Indeed, there are copies out there uh, where our young man was a young woman. So, thank you. Chris. Our next speaker is Brian Keene, who is Assistant Curator of Medieval Manuscripts at the J. Paul Getty Museum. Do we say the full name and Kurtold Institute of Art? No, that's where I finished my PhD last year. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> but that's all right. Brian C. Keene holds a PhD from the Kurtold <laughs> Institute of Art and Assistant Curator of Medieval Manuscripts at the J. Paul Getty Thank you. Um, and thank you to the organizers and to all of you for being here early. I only teach this class uh, at the early morning hours because I'm not able to take time off during the day to teach. So from 7.30 a.m. until 9 a.m., uh, students race to the beach, either at Pepperdine University uh, or Loyola Marymount University, to take this course um, over a 10- or 14-week period. Uh, half of the classes, though, are offered at the Getty Center or the L.A. County Museum of Art or the Huntington Library so that students are getting hands-on experience with objects directly. Um, and half of the classes are co-taught with specialists from other parts of the world so that this is not just a Western medievalist tacking on other parts of the world to their own areas of study. Um, and so the course took about three years to plan with local specialists uh, in the area. And we began with this manuscript that I talked about a bit yesterday um, that tells a story of a prince in the land of India sometime after the creation of the world by the name of Josephat, who was kept in the palace by his father until one day he went out into the world and encountered sickness, old age, and death. And distraught by these encounters, he meditated under a tree, was met by a Christian monk called Barlam, received a sacred gem, and converts to Christianity before converting the entire land of India to Christianity that had not received the message from St. Thomas the Apostle centuries earlier. Um, now this story perpetuated throughout the medieval period from Byzantium to Western Europe in a range of sources here, all of which have been translated into English and are available online or in new critical editions like the, the Guy de Cambrai version uh, that was recently translated uh, by Peggy McCracken and um, uh, Donald Lopez, so a combination of a French medievalist and a, um, a specialist in Buddhism. But in a, uh, um, an astute listener will know that this story of Prince Josephat is loosely based on the stories of the Buddha, and there are only three moments in this tale that really do directly overlap with the life of the Buddha, some of which I've just told you. 
So we spend the first week talking about this process of translation and the challenges in translation studies in thinking about global or this long medieval period, um, starting off with the word Josephat in Latin, which comes from the Greek Yoasaf, from the Georgian Yodasaf, from the Arabic and Persian Budasaf, and ultimately Sanskrit Bodhisattva. That allows us to then look at a range of books that preserve these stories through the Prajnaparamita or the sutras um, in Southeast Asia and East Asia, to world chronicles made for the Timurid court, um, to a Mount Athos manuscript that I studied for the past three years that has a Greek text with a Georgian appendix, and then a French pilgrim came along and translated it into French, followed by the many Latin editions of the text. So over the course of two weeks, they've just been given this large uh, overview of a single story and its many lives across time and across geographies. Um, the connection between the Buddha and Josephat was made by a Portuguese humanist in the 16th century called Diogo do Couto, who was reading Marco Polo and realized that Sagomoni Borcon is the same figure as Josephat, who had been sainted and is commemorated on August 27th or November 27th, east or west. Uh, this was also, this course was used as preparation for a Pan-Asian Buddhism exhibition that will open at the LA County Museum next year in collaboration between the Southeast Asian and Chinese departments in which the curators have placed small-scale portable and votive sculptures alongside book arts from South and East Asia to tell the story of Buddhism's spread and the many different textual communities of Buddhism but also to think about the idea of Buddhism or of the Buddha moving into Western Europe beyond. That will be the appendix at the very end. Um, so in the course, students choose a single object from the Gettys collections, and I challenge them to think of ways in which that single object can map, can map beyond itself into the world. So for example, students can choose the story of Alexander the Great, as it was told in the Burgundian court in 1470 or in the Shirazi court in 1470, uh, the story of Iskandar, trying to get back to the Macedonian world ruler or seeing how far beyond Greece we really go. Um, in these stories, students have, in one instance, talked about transmisogyny at the Burgundian court um, and how that was related to uh, Charles the Bold's purchasing of silk from Shiraz and how those dialogues in the archives about Shirazi silk uh, become uh, conflated in the story of Alexander's lover, Bagoas, who becomes Bagoe, the eunuch transgendered figure in the narrative. Or the way in which the Shirazi example of Iskandar visiting the Kaaba in Mecca leads to uh, racial discourses about black Africans and about the Shirazi interest at the time to recolonize parts of Eastern Africa. Again, all of this in collaboration with specialists beyond Western Europe. Um, and still another student traced the story of Alexander in court settings all the way to Mughal India to see the same story as it was told in many different iterations, the famous story of Alexander and the diving bell um, across a hundred year period in this case. Um, students at both universities have already come to this class with two and a half years of experience in the humanities program, where they encounter in the second humanities course excerpts from Brodel's La Mediterranean, uh, the, uh, the Here with a Thousand Faces, Vermeer's Hat, The Cheese and the Worm. So they're given macro and micro views of history prior to coming to this course. And that then becomes the challenge of thinking uh, diachronically and synchronically about this material in order to problematize the term medieval or the way in which the idea of the Middle Ages is grafted onto other parts of the world, sometimes violently, sometimes um, unreasonably. 
Um, and so for the second to fourth weeks, then, we do a little bit of mapping, thinking about how people throughout this broad period that we're talking about around the world mapped themselves. Um, and this last semester, I gave the students the edited volume that I'm working on with 24 authors who work across uh, book specializations uh, as a test case to see does this work and where are the students finding troubles with this material. Um, we began with H.G. Wells, The Outline of History, because I think this map of the world, uh, or of history of the medieval period, is as confusing as it can get. Um, but it also allows us to talk a little bit about the fantastic view of the Middle Ages, since many of the students will, after this course, read some of H.G. Wells' sci-fi uh, novels. And being in Los Angeles, it works very well with Hollywood nearby, um, thinking about the difficulties in telling a global story um, that either centers on crusade or discovery, um, and Africa only gets a small footnote in all of this. So trying to you know, insist that we think even beyond these confines of textbooks. Um, but using something like Janet Abu Lugod's uh, circuits of 13th century world system is problematic as well. Um, the first time I taught the course, I only allowed students to work within the sphere in which their book was created. And that was certainly interesting for me to see how far the students could get beyond and their own desire to go further afield. Uh, this map has been redrawn many times, uh, most recently by Monica Green, to show the spread of the Black Death um, and how we have to think of places beyond the war. Um, these spheres, and even how the Vikings may have spread portions of the plague to Nova Scotia. Um, but also looking at um, uh, you know, a China-centered approach um, here, uh, thinking about some of the challenges again from the East going West in mapping the world. Um, and then of course the Silk Road becomes the, the map that we default to for the course. Um, but in a Western European context, we thought, talk about the TO system and the many problems with that system and the way in which those maps are often redrawn so that Ethiopia could exist both in Africa, um, in the Holy Land, or in Southeast Asia, or sometimes beyond those lands entirely. Um, looking at maps in encyclopedic texts in the um, Islamic world, um, the sort of uh, southwest, uh, south-north orientation rather, um, or some of the early surviving maps like this 1402 map from Korea and the challenges of mapping spaces that don't have pre-15th century mapping traditions or maps that survive in any case. Um, so the final goal is for the students to create a virtual exhibition that allows them to draw from local collections, but also anything that's been digitized. And in that context, we discuss the ethics of digitization and in textbooks and in the kinds of images that continue to be reproduced over and over again in textbooks because they're readily available. Um, but being able to work closely with uh, digitized books at the Hill Monastic Library, students are able to reach out to, let's say, Ethiopia to think about the Gundagunde monasteries, the Tigray monasteries, or with the Institut du Monde Arabe to think about Timbuktu and the digitization pro uh, projects there, or with the Topkapi Palace and the recently digitized uh, Quranic manuscripts. So we're getting beyond this sort of Google uh, Cultural Institute model of digitized imagery. Some students take a very simple approach, just mapping the journeys of a protagonist in a story, like the adventures of Julien de Trésigny in a story that was told just after Byzantium uh, fell to the Ottoman Turks, and thinking about what this narrative tells about crusading ideology in the 15th century. Um, or mapping the place names in a book of hours for a French patron to see what places the owner could sort of imaginatively get to, not only through the place names, but the pilgrim badges that were glued into or sewn into the manuscript itself. And so these presentations are then presented online 
um, in collaboration with curators across Los Angeles. My favorite was this Byzantine icon from the court of René of Anjou, in which the Nazarene motto was written across the triptych at the top, um, and the Mamluk emblems were placed below. And it happens that these two portable objects uh, entered into French collections relatively early on, before then entering in either the Met collection or private collection. Um, some of the projects here, White Gold, A Tale of Porcelain, looking at inventories of how this blue and white material was named um, in the 15th century, both at the Topkapi and um, at the Medici court. Um, or the Chintamani pattern, motif and meaning. What do these motifs mean as they cross geographies? Uh, where do we, uh, can we, in the Barlam and Josephat story, get back to the idea of a sacred and auspicious gem in the Southeast Asian context? And then I end with uh, a final discussion about worlds together, worlds apart. Um, we're taking the ultimate macro view, returning to um, the German workshop, talking about uh, a supernova witnessed in 1054 uh, that archaeoastronomers have found referenced in uh, North American rock art uh, through carved and oral traditions um, in the Pacific Northwest. Um, so that's the long and the short of the course. Um, and it's been quite fun, and we'll do it again in January. Thank you. I'm finding myself here with a too long list of courses I now want to take. Um, our final speaker is Holly Schaefer, who's Assistant Professor of Art History at Brown University. There's a clicker in point. Oh, fantastic. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you so much. What a rich... Um, what a rich group of papers. Um, so I'm going to focus only on a single, oh, actually, I have to do one thing because I need my notes. All right, thank you. And to start again, so um, in this talk, I'd, I'd like to think about how to teach images within a global book history, and coming off of that was absolutely brilliant. And so I'm interested in kind of uh, thinking comparatively. Um, and in this case, I'm looking at a single book, and um, this book is available in facsimile, probably with many problems, um, but this model can be applied to many other books that are based on original source material, and so I'm going to be compiling a list as part of this project for that to see how this kind of can percolate if your collection doesn't have this book, which is quite likely. <laughs> um, so. Um, so the question I'd like to address is how to teach images within a global book history. And in this case, how um, specifically Indian religious icons and narrative paintings were made into British engravings. And so this book can teach us a lot about Indian works of art and devotion because they were primarily made in Western India between 1785 and 1805. And here we're looking at, um, on the left, um, an icon of Ganesh, who happens to also be a particularly important deity in Western India. But we can also learn, um, so on the one hand, we can learn about um, uh, a region of art in India, but on the other, we can also learn about um, their subsequent incorporation into a British book by engravers steeped in a neoclassical aesthetic um, and also an Orientalist one. So here you can see, so here we have this, and we'll go into this, but this is based on a, 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 a bronze icon. But then we'll see this Ouroboros, this kind of uh, snake eating its tail, um, which is 
coming out of an antiquarian tradition um, as well. And this um, encircles uh, the Sanskrit um, sound, um, om, uh, and it's radiating um, beatific light that in fact has nothing to do with the sculpture and was added um, later by, by the British. Uh, who believed that this was the way to animate the sculpture, a sculpture that was in fact not animate at this point. So, um, so this book uh, is a useful, potentially useful tool for teaching global book history because it raises the question um, not only of the creation of illustrations based on original artworks, original source material, but also about their reproduction. So the book itself went through three editions um, but the illustrations in clusters or individually were copied from this book um, or one of its replicas by other artists and um, included in their publications. So thus we confront a kind of classic bibliographic question of the edition, but in a new way. So how do we understand how the image is reproduced outside of its first container, the book? Does that clear? Yeah. So this example um, is Edward Moore's Hindu Pantheon. It was published in 1810 in London. And it's somewhat of a neat um, uh, case study in the sense that Edward Moore was an East India Company official. He sailed for India at the young age, actually the normal age at that time of 11 years old. Um, he was stationed primarily in Western India and participated in the wars against Tipu Sultan of Mysore. Um, at this time, the British had allied with these powerful regional rulers, um, the Marathas, and Moore was actually embedded within the Maratha army. And so this is one reason that he encountered Hindu gods um, as the Maratha army stopped at pilgrimage sites on their routes of conquest. Um, so from this interest, he began to compile information to collect and patronize artists to produce images and eventually to have those images um, uh, translated into engravings for a book. And this was one of the kind of earliest uh, books to contain um, images of the Hindu gods. There are a hundred plates with about a one and ten images um, per plate. Um, so this book had an initial print run of about 600 copies. It's in the British Museum alongside the engraver's proofs the artist Moses Houghton's drawings of the sculptures and paintings for the engraver, and the sculptures and paintings are also there. Um, so only the letters um, written by Moore are outside of the British Museum. So it's kind of all contained there, and in fact, almost entirely online because of their um, fabulous um, digital um, program. So, oh, I should have been on this one, apologies. So, here we can see the translation of object to print in stages. So on the right, we have um, the bronze um, icon, and it's very small. It's actually just about this big. So it's a portable bronze icon, which we uh, just heard about, basically, in terms of uh, the movement of, Buddha, of the Buddha images. Um, and then you can see how Moses Houghton, the draftsman, um, translated this, um, adding our Ouroboros ohm and the radiating light. Um, and I, don't, I hope you can see that he also racialized the sculpture. So he kind of differentiated the elephant head of the Hindu god Ganesh from the child's body, which has been lightened in color. So he kind of added, the bronze obviously doesn't differentiate 
this bronze does um, often uh, kind of special parts of the god, so the trunk or the belly are rubbed, so they do have kind of a different patina, but this kind of gradation of color is not in the, in the um, object originally. And then you can see how the, the, the engraver, Schiavonetti, this is actually one of his last um, engravings, then he translates this watercolor into a final engraving and uh, even stressing more this kind of, I think, this radiating light. Um, most of the paintings, um, on the other hand, were actually almost literally traced. And I think that, again, this is important to think about in terms of the copy. And they were traced in outline again. Here is the drawing. Here's the subsequent engraving. And more actually put tracing paper over the paintings and, uh, and would write notes, um, including outline. <laughs> um, so there's actually a very clear relationship between the object and how it becomes an engraving. And in one copy of the book, the, um, the tracing paper with the figures delineated um, is actually glued in rather than the drawing from which it was traced. Um, and you can see how this strong graphic linear quality of the works asserted itself in the reproduction. And it's important to recognize that in India, many of these paintings especially would have also been copied. Um, so there's also a, a very strong tradition of making reproductions from um, a single um, drawing through pouncing, um, especially, or again, through other techniques of copying. Um, so the artist, and also artists would, would actually draw the same figure so many times that there is, um, there is an aspect of reproduction even within the work itself. So at times, the concept of the copy could even lose its value, and that's something I just wanted to signal. So before returning to how outline in particular overlapped with other popular European aesthetics, I'd just like to show a sample of what types of art were used for this publication to show how it, in certain ways, documents a very local artistic production in um, India circa 1800. And so we have, a, there are a lot of very uh, small bronze icons that likely would have been sold at temples on pilgrimage routes uh, that I mentioned more himself traveled as a soldier, or they could have been um, purchased in local markets. In Moore's case, they were actually often damaged and could have actually been in scrap heaps with um, copper workers. And so most of the objects he was working with were actually no longer efficacious. Um, and sold to him by dealers who were instructed to search by such objects. So we're looking at a very particular type of object, often damaged, often without key elements, such as um, the shrine around it, which you do see on the upper left. Um, there were also paintings produced for courts. Um, while still of gods, these paintings were made for an elite audience, and they could have been part of albums or used for more intimate viewing or devotional use. So there's a wide range of material that he was using. And he also hired um, a local artist in uh, Bombay, present-day Mumbai. And this artist was likely a wall painter who would have been hired for regional holidays or for special family occasions, such as the birth of a child or a marriage. And under Moore's instruction, he seems to have kind of clipped out certain um, aspects of uh, these wider programs into kind of more, uh, into kind of neater, singular um, images. Oh, gosh. And um, 
in order to, and some of them were even completely graphic in order to use them uh, as if they were already en route to the engraver. Um, there are also um, objects made for Moore's friends, so he also uh, has those involved. So I'd just like to spend a moment to see how there are problems in translation uh, from object to publication. Here we're seeing um, Moore view this as kind of an ethnographic image of a woman uh, performing her uh, devotion. However, the painting it was based on was likely part of a series uh, documenting musical modes. So we're seeing how the translation, there can be many uh, missteps in translation. I'm just going to skip over this one. Uh, just to spend one moment um, thinking about the use of outline. Moore's use of outline was absolutely connected to the European antiquarian publications. Uh, such as this one, um, as well as um, the kind of huge popularization of neoclassical forms connected to the Greek gods. And you can hear in the Hindu pantheon, we have both the Hindu world and the Greek world simultaneously. Um, and this was part of his kind of intimate circle, which I'm not going to get into at this time, but just to note that his book was potentially also used by William Blake, for example. So this, this book kind of circulated and had impact in a design community, um, as well as um, uh, uh, a missionary one. And I just, just to conclude, just to say how this book, which we're seeing one copy of here, um, ends up going through three editions. Um, in one, the second edition, the image of Jesus as a Hindu god was removed. Um, in the third edition, it actually explicitly becomes um, a missionary text. And then there's the question of how the images in Moore's Pantheon are loosed from their original. Here, this is kind of a soldier's rendition. Here we see um, how certain of these images, you might recognize this from one of the paintings, um, become part of atlases. This is a German one. Also, missionary board games here. Our original Hindu icon has moved from Western India up into Varanasi and um, undergoes really an incredible transformation, which we can go into in questions. And um, these images even uh, end up participating in um, really stereotypical um, and negative uh, qualities about uh, Indian people themselves. So how does information about an icon get translated into information about people? And here you can see how his images also become incorporated into colonial design. So basically, in uh, brief conclusion, what this book, um, the, what this offers, this offers a variety of ways to discuss global book history with a particular emphasis on illustrated books. So there are four main points I just wanted to get across. The source of Indian images for a European project have their own history, one that, um, one that can be brought out uh, through printed publications, the translation of art objects into print, and the design and biographical dialogues in which they participate, their dissemination in the global book trade, and their dissemination as individual or groups of engravings in other publications outside of the traditional framework of the whole book edition. So thank you. Thank you. I'd like to now ask all of our speakers to come up and have a seat in the front for a, a discussion. We have a little over 20 minutes remaining.
for discussion. Um, one of the things that, that I was struck by was um, the way that some of the kind of pedagogic modes that, that came up um, uh, are a kind of a, I think of a sort of a macro level study, right? So the, the ability to study a book in the context of objects that have come from all over the world, or the ability to study um, objects from all over the world who kind of come to one city or one museum, um, that is itself a kind of globality, right? Because these are, we might think about kind of processes of colonialism and imperialism and wealth concentration that have actually brought artifacts to one place, or conversely, have caused there to be a paucity of artifacts in places or, or at institutions. Um, but another approach that we heard about was a kind of micro level of sort of inhabiting um, particular experiences of book history or of book culture, of trying to make the quill, for example, or trying to read a particular book. Um, so that was, that was one sort of pedagogic kind of spectrum that occurred to me. Um, I want to start off asking about the Galileo edition, and then I'll hand, open, open the floor. Um, anyone who was at the digital um, material session yesterday heard Rika Jordan's religion at that session, Rika Jordan talk about um, this sort of persistent remediation of modern printed material for the PDF format that happens around the classroom, and sort of between the classroom and the professor's office and the department office. Um, and the way that PDFs and printed paper kind of go through this cycle and acquire these traces. It occurred to me that some of what you were talking about, about the kind of remediation through facsimiles, and I was really struck by this idea of kind of using the facsimile as a critical object itself, and having students interrogate what it is to be a facsimile. But I was wondering if students sort of made any connections to the processes of adaptation and remediation that they themselves use kind of in their, in their slides of students. We skipped the last three sentences of our presentation so you gave us the card, but we had some student responses. Sure. Well, um, uh, one student who worked with uh, an edition of 1653, uh, as uh, the student explained, digitized from the microfilm of the original copy at the University of Illinois, and then with, quote, a textual and visual translation published in Florence in 1892, uh, explaining that they were distinct from each other in both content and character, and affected the reader's ability to understand Gallo's work, Galileo's work, largely due to differences in the intent of reproduction. Uh, the soon went on, a facsimile is successful if the, quote, reader believes that the content is presented in the way that Galileo intended, interesting mm. notion. On the other hand, some reproductions, quote, are not made with the intent to preserve history or information, but instead to deceive. <laughs> and uh, another one uh, declared, it was abundantly clear that not all facsimiles are created equal. Great. He's got really thoughtful, productive, yeah. uh, and enthusiastic responses. But, you know, those of us with a kind of a literary context or background are well versed now in not we're trying to not speak to authorial intent, yeah. but printerly intent or reproductive yeah. intent or, or something like that. I think, especially if you're thinking across historical or across cultural contexts, um, that's very provocative or approaching. Yeah, please. So I thought this was really great. One, I'm going to give a positive comment and then a question, so you don't have to listen. But I thought one of the things you did that was really cool 
is you started with this brainless thing about pedagogy, and then you guys did a lot of showing, not telling, which was really cool, because I'm like, this is how we do it, and here's like a mini showing of how we're connecting these things. Um, but my question is, and it's for everyone, or anyone who cares to answer it, I was struck by Joseph and Devin's kind of frame, which is like, we're doing this kind of teaching, which uses these local collections, which uses expertise, which you know invites this broader range, which isn't forcing it, which isn't tacking it on, which isn't buying the right textbook, but in fact, integrated into a community. And what I noticed across all these, these presentations is you're somewhere with enlightened librarians, who've been buying visionary collections, and you had an enlightened hiring officer who brought someone in with expertise that all this stuff lined up, right? And so I'm trying to imagine like what's necessary and what's sufficient for this kind of global book history pedagogy to happen, right? You need a good, you need the right collection and you need somebody who can work with it, right? So you don't necessarily want someone doing medieval manuscripts where you don't have them. You don't want the Chinese book where there aren't Chinese books, um, but maybe you do. And so I, I'm just curious, like, aside from all becoming administrators and like changing library <laughs> policy and hiring the right people, like, what can we do and, and what do you, what's necessary and sufficient? I, I, have, I mean, I have, that's a great question, James. Uh, and it also, actually, I'm gonna ask a question back, which is that, uh, one of the aspects of global history is you get uh, a sort of responsibility creep. And in departments like area studies, and I was defending to Brian about this, uh, Europeanists are increasingly taking our jobs because they're becoming more cosmopolitan in their pedagogy, and now people don't need East Asianists. Why would you hire a medieval China specialist if you have a Europeanist who's got three weeks of medieval China in their world history survey. But this is something that's also a problem with global history is that uh, it will, in some respects, allow the others as trained professionals to be axed and we become like pseudo consultants, uh, which I am I'm frequently a consultant to people when they want to put uh, materials on their course. So that, I mean, that's, I think that bothered you. Can I just respond to that as well? I think one of the one of the things that is really valuable about that, about all of these kinds of approaches and the excellent argument is just the synergy that it creates between different units. That uh, you know, from an administrative perspective, they're constantly trying to see what the connections and what the strengths are that can be built between. So if you come as a you know faculty member and say, look. I'd like to use the rare book collection here. I'd like to make a collaboration with a digital, with a digital library collection across the world or across the town. It's not going to cost us anything. We can have conversations via Skype. Um, all of these kinds of collaborative ventures, I think, are going to be very well well received um, wherever you know whatever institution. I love the way all of you uh, really integrated both the local materials and the, the, the broader resources available. So that's one, one way you can think of it. Yeah, um, so I really, really enjoyed this panel as well. Um, and I think there's amazing work that's being done um, on this front. But one question that kept coming up to me is, how do we, how do we sort of situate cultural constructions of chronology in these global book history projects, right? Because I'm always hearing you know, the terms like the global Middle Ages, or you know, eight, you know, eight, uh, CE eighteen hundred for you know this a particular text, and you know there are different ways that we different culture different cultures kind of construct their own histories, their own period periodization. 
And uh, I'm wondering how we sort of situate that in the, in the framework of teaching teaching these global co-projects. I mean, from a curatorial perspective, we have to, we've started to now incorporate dual dating systems, even on our label, for anything, any exhibition that includes Islamic objects. Uh, we now have two dates on all the labels, unless the objects predate the seventh century. Um, but even that, I mean, it, it, it was the insistence of the lending institutions that we do that. So that's one way to sort of address different chronologies and then having separate panels that explain the challenges in chronology. That we can't talk about global Middle Ages for really anywhere, um, but we, we do it uh, because it's marketable, like you were saying earlier. Um, so it, we do fall into those, open, those traps as well, institutionally. I think one question that your question makes us think about is the way that the term global sometimes implies a kind of distant objectivity, right? Like seeing the earth from the moon, you know, <laughs> kind of looking down from everything at the same distance. When in fact, as you point out, global is always from starting from a perspective. Like it's global from where I stand. Right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Does anyone else have any thoughts on this problem? Um, yeah, I had a comment. And that, uh, the reason I tried to structure what I was doing is because the good thing about material history is we can flip the script and say, I, I'm now doing information problems, and every society has to deal with information. And so uh, I just finished a syllabus called, uh, called Random Access and Global History of Information. And really, it's, I mean, if a, if a communications department would probably like it more than a history department, because I, I deal with orality, and those readings are about like Homeric epic traditions at the same time as they're also talking about like contemporary recitations of uh, bardic poetry in Spain. And so information history or, or these material histories let you do away with chronology and just say like this is a human problem yeah. and like everyone has certain responses to it. Yeah, I like that. When I was um, putting together my global history course, a global book history course, I was I originally called something like world book histories. Um, and for a while I was thinking about just sort of like human histories of writing. And the committee kept saying, well, what if we called it global? <laughs> it's like, I don't know. That clearly means something to you. I'm not sure it's what I want to say. Um, yeah, I know. I like that a lot. Though. Yeah. And maybe something we do is, as we teach, bring the student's attention to the idea that this is neither global nor legal, right? Or neither global nor early modern. You know, modern, early, to whom, where, when, mm -hmm. and that these categories have new names and histories and uh, matter less than, than, than the thing we're asking them to do. To get back to um, an issue Devon raised, one of the most powerful forces, I think, that one finds oneself trying to resist if one is trying to teach a global book history from a perspective as a Westernist of some sort, is that the narrative of book history that is taught in the West or taught about the West and taught in kind of Westernist departments is very much techno-teleological, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. That everything, there's been this constant improvement up to the modern printed book, right? And, and you even have kind of secondary consequences of that where you think about you try to think in a post-colonial way, you end up thinking about, well, Westerners like bringing print to their colonies, or you end up thinking about East Asian printing as a kind of an oddball mirror to it or something like that. And I think if you can think about, you know, challenge your students, for example, to draw um, all the different kind of parallel human timelines of writing technologies, yeah. what you'll see is that periodization, I mean, we all know this, but periodization is intensely artificial. Right? And a technologized periodization in the context of book history actually becomes deeply unhelpful. It's like counterproductive. Um, 
So that's, I mean, I, I remember filling up a whiteboard once with these kind of parallel timelines, and the students were like, oh, printed books are not like the only thing, you know? Yeah. I, uh, this is a wonderful panel, and it's, uh, it's really been helping me because I struggle with the, uh, as some of the panelists mentioned, that, you know, tacking something on at the end. Digital textuality is often tacked on to the end, of course, but also, uh, you know, this, anyway, uh, the, the point I wanted to make, though, is one of the ways I try to kind of mess with the categories from the very beginning of the course, as you were saying, in chronological categories as well, is the first thing I usually assign is Don McKenzie's piece on the Treaty of Waitangi in New Zealand. Mm -hmm. Because that's something, it's sort of an overture piece for many aspects of book history and bibliography because you get different technologies, morality, translation, philology, but you also get the perspective of indigenous peoples, both as represented by McKenzie and Western historians. Um, but it, one of the things that it does is also keeps Aboriginal people and those forms of textuality and their appropriation of Western technologies as a thread that I try to keep running through the course. That's, there's so many threads to keep running, it's challenging. So I guess my question too is about what, when we're looking at global approaches to teaching bibliography, how do you see First Nations people, Aboriginal people, uh, Indigenous people, and their forms of sexuality fitting into things that we're doing here? I'm keeping in mind what you said about responsibility creep, though, too. So maybe not a fair question. It's a really wonderful question, and um, thank you for that. One way that I've been talking about with a lot of colleagues is through material history, so not simply what does replication mean writ large, not solely with the printed word. And the materials, in fact, can be and are reproduced, and so there are histories that come through or, and can be reproduced in a classroom in very innovative ways. So one of my colleagues was making adobe with her students. And um, I was and, and this actually is similar to your idea of making the nibs. And so I, I don't have an answer, but I think perhaps one route of investigation is actually through the making of certain materials that are conveying knowledge and, and on the line of, of technologies. Yeah, also thinking about uh, the modes of transmission whereby we've received these texts um, is a helpful. So we're not trying to sort of supersede everything that stands between us and the transmission of oral narrative. Um, you know, we have uh, in the first volume of the Norton Anthology of American Literature a bunch of uh, Native American stories, which is wonderful, but they're also radically decontextualized. Yeah, and. For that reason, I think for me at least, almost impossible to teach. Whereas, um, you know, if, if one returns to the kind of 18th or 19th century recordings of these things and thinks about the context in which they're being transcribed and disseminated, where they're coming from, um, you know, in a sense, you kind of one can do both, right? You can think about uh, the structures of power and uh, processes of production that are characteristic, you know, like I said. Early American interest in Native American culture, and also those cultures themselves, in as much as we can access them in that necessarily mediated way. Just a, um, the one thing that both um, I have done, well, we could teach quite a bit together, also uh, independently, but 
um, is to do exercises in which we try to get the students to denaturalize the things that are have become natural, for instance, the book offerings. So you know, taking a bunch of books off the shelf and throwing them on the table and telling them to sort them without opening the book, mm -hmm. right? And so just by the physical, the physicality, you know, does it have soft cover, hard cover, what, how big, or, you know, is it in double columns? You know, is it double columns? Is there something on the spine? Is there a paper, you know, a book jacket? And that's what, and they do it, right? And we say, well, how did you do that? And of course, mm -hmm. we've learned how to read these indications. And so that's a sort of entry point for us to get them to start thinking about how do you un unpack or undo the thing that you're taking for granted. And that was also motivating the idea of looking at additions critically, even a critical addition, and think about what it means to do a critical addition. Right? That, that every every version is its own thing and has its own history. Yeah. And, and there are challenges to it uh, increasingly with pressures on space on libraries. Why do you need all these facsimiles? Nineteenth and twentieth century facsimiles really wouldn't one copy for the consortium suffice or for the nation? Yeah, or just a photograph of one copy. You know, I uh, so to, to answer the question about First Nations specifically, I did so I did a bit very kind of explicitly in my course on. Um, American First Nations printing kind of in the context of Western expansion, European expansion into the Americas. I was amazed at how much printed material we had at Columbia in uh, Cherokee uh, printing and pre-syllabary, but a lot of it came from our offsite repository, which is like in the crosshairs for deduping and deaccessioning, so I'm now very worried about that material. Um, you can you can push that material to the margins of the context, not in which it was necessarily printed, which is often kind of missionary, right? but it kind of is which it was used, right? So when we looked at Cherokee books, I had my students read articles about, for example, um, Cherokee, how, why, how and why Cherokee alphabets still hang in the homes of Cherokee people who don't use the alphabet, right? Or the way that Cree syllabary, which was originally developed for kind of missionary purposes, was actually adopted by neighboring communities who didn't want to read the Bible, but they wanted to use writing for their own purposes. And you oh, kind wow. of trace these things beyond their original technological projection um, outwards. And I also had them read some uh, contemporary journalism about like internet access and reservations in America today, for example, on the communication circuit. So that's just one example. Yeah, exactly. And this also, since we're talking about the, the global and hemispheric approach to uh, indigenous knowledge, would be helpful because we're looking at indigenous peoples in the Spanish Americas. So you have manuscript books, yes. printed books, yeah, yeah, yeah. so uh, you can use that. It's not US, but you know, yeah. if we're going to be global, we should be transnational too. Yes, yeah, which is the perfect plug because I'm going to make for the John Perry Brown Library. <laughs> 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 all, all joking aside, we are in the process that we have a grant from the Mellon Foundation to provide through our indigenous languages database, which we have one of, one of the you know, most broad and hemispheric collections anywhere. Um, uh, increasing tools for engagement uh, with scholarship and teaching. And one of the things that we hope to be able to produce is precisely um, so that all of you and your students and uh, indigenous communities, uh, wherever they may be, can contribute to the interpretation of the materials that we have. So it may not be, in fact, you know, the, mission, you know, the missionary context may be the context in which it was produced, but will hopefully be able to get to a point where we can also hear the voices of those who 
uh, were missionized, those who are thinking about other ways of interpreting the, the materials. So um, I think that, that, for me, is one of the exciting things about this kind of meeting more broadly and where libraries and institutions are going, which is there's going to be an increased opportunity for this kind of connection. I think it, you know it's important to, for us to try to strike a thoughtful balance between, say, me not wanting to kind of exploit and tokenize my friend Devin and like get him to give me a you know readings for my class on for a week on East Asia or something, but you know I, I think it would be beneficial, for example, to seek and reach out to colleagues uh, to answer your question again. Reach out to colleagues or students who themselves have tribal affiliations, yeah. right, or who themselves have worked on this material. Um, I think that uh, you know that's something to aspire to. Yeah, for sure. Is there a question? We're at time, but I think we can stomach one or two more questions. This one, yeah, I really like Chris, your presentation and just getting the students to engage with the book as a reader in the time period and train a bit. But also, that really teaches them, you know, what is the use of this book? You can read the contents and say they're going to learn how to make a quill and they're going to know how to read. Well, actually, you can't learn how to make a book from a book. And learning to write characters is actually more about moral formation than maybe as much as it is about chemistry. I mean, and it's always both, right? It's always character and penmanship. And, um, you know, Franklin is very explicit about this, uh, that, uh, you know, your, your hand will redound to your credit. Uh, because you can demonstrate that you are, you know, the sort of person who has put in the work to write properly, I suppose. Yeah, it's creating this deep experience of the as much as possible right. in our contemporary world of what's going on in the... Yeah, I mean, I've been thinking about a new way of doing the, that assignment, and I, I think it might actually work better if I give it to them in the first week, and then tell them I'll be collecting it at the end. <laughs> um, <laughs> you've got a quarter <laughs> to get this down, um, so that it's not a week's worth of effort, but rather a kind of cumulative effect. It's very fun. It would take more feathers and more <laughs> So, so what do you do about the left-handed students? <laughs> they have to sort themselves out. Well, <laughs> and, and they weren't permitted to remain left-handed. Well, that's where I would go down and <laughs> I mean, you know, I suppose you could try uh, something. You can yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm left-handed, and I do calligraphy, and it's, well, you can buy special nibs, yeah. so that's, that's it. Uh, so that. uh, I had to write a police confession in China once, uh, and they gave me a fountain pen. Uh, and it was a total disaster trying to write Chinese in a fountain pen as a left-handed. I just kept tearing the confession paper. And that's the problem with your confession was the pen? We'll have drinks five I have never in my career seen an academic career end on such a tantalizing <laughs> Just continue this conversation over coffee or drinks at a later time. I want to thank all of our speakers, organizers, and everyone. Thank <laughs> you.